What are some myths that you commonly hear? For gestational diabetes, I think the biggest one arguably is that people need to fully eliminate carbs. Mm, yeah. I'm sure doctors. doctors. That's what doctors say. Yeah. Yeah. They say eliminating like very specific ones, like don't have any white rice, don't have any potatoes, like all the white things, um, which is completely false. I get so many clients who are like that guilt and shame cycle where they just cannot stomach anything else in the first trimester except crackers or, you know, whatever toast. And then they're like, am I, am I setting myself up for, you know, gestational diabetes, diabetes, or even miscarriage? And it's like, no, no, like focus on, do the best you can and add, add instead of take away. You're listening to the Imperfect PCOS Podcast, where we share no BS science-backed strategies to put your PCOS into remission. I'm your host, Corey Ruth, aka The Women's Dietitian. Let's get into it. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Imperfect PCOS Podcast. Today, we are joined by Casey Seiden. She is not only a fellow registered dietitian, but she is a longtime friend of mine. I say friend, and I I should put that in quotes because we've never actually met in person, but we've been internet, Instagram, mastermind group frenzies for literally years. So I can't wait to host her today. So she is also somebody who is specialized in diabetes care and education, and she is based in NYC. She works at Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates, the premier maternal fetal medicine practice in Manhattan, where she provides nutrition therapy and counseling to women with high-risk pregnancies. She's also the founder of Casey Sided Nutrition, a virtual private practice specializing in the non-diet approach to diabetes care and women's health. So happy to have you today, Casey. So excited to be here, Corey. Thanks for having me. Yes. Oh my gosh. So much to dive into today, especially considering that women with PCOS, we are at a higher risk of things like gestational diabetes, among other potential pregnancy complications. First, tell us how you got into this field. What made you want to specialize in this specific? I feel like it is kind of a a niche area. How did you get into it? Yeah, it is a funny story that just kind of like fell into my lap. Once I became a dietitian, I started out working in mostly just the general type two pre-diabetes space. Um, I worked at kind of a lower income clinic up in the Bronx in New York City. So did that for a few years and was maybe thinking it was time for a change. And a former boss, former colleague of mine was the dietitian at Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates and was going to be leaving. It was a little bit more of a flexible job. It was still in the diabetes space, but totally different clientele, only women, only pregnancy. I do some preconception and postpartum stuff too, but I was like, you know what? That sounds like just the right change that I need. Um, And it also just was coinciding with my own health journey at the time. I was going through some uh, discovery of thyroid conditions and was on my fertility journey. So it all just kind of coalesced and felt right. So I, yeah, really niche down the most of the bulk of my work is kind of doing gestational diabetes, but it's also prenatal nutrition, things like PCOS and preconception. Um, yeah. So I, I really love it. I love working with this population now. That's so cool. Yeah. What a perfect combination. And it, you know, it's, it's really, we all have a personal story as to why we got into the the area that we're working in. So I love to hear it. If we could just define, first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with the diagnosis or are maybe potentially 
thinking about getting pregnant in the future, you know, thinking about their own journey, what is gestational diabetes? Gestational diabetes, to sum it up, if you can, is a specific type of diabetes that we first uncover and diagnose only in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And essentially what it means that's going on in the body is that due to hormones that the placenta is making kind of at the end of the second trimester, start of the third trimester, mom starts to become very insulin resistant um, or kind of carb intolerant. Her body is just not able to process carbs the same way or make enough insulin to keep up with the demands of the pregnancy. Um, Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what's going on. Okay. So it's only during pregnancy. This doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to extend. Does it always end when a pregnancy ends? Right. So since it's the placenta that's creating, you know, all these issues and putting out the hormones, once the placenta is out of your body, then theoretically, yes, your blood sugar numbers will reserve, get back to their normal state. And again, that's kind of with the assumption that we identified whether you had or didn't have any pre-existing blood sugar irregularities before you came into that pregnancy, whether that was diagnosed or undiagnosed pre-diabetes or type two diabetes. Okay. Is that an op- like, is that a common finding women realize, oh my God, I've had this kind of in the background and I never knew it. I don't know that it's super common. We're see- we're seeing it a little bit more, and I think it depends on your practitioner or how mm-hmm. up on your own health screenings you are. You know, if your OBGYN or primary care provider didn't check a hemoglobin A1C prior to pregnancy, some people, some someone might go into pregnancy not really knowing their glucose status. Yeah, that's that's got to be a scary finding. And I, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of women and clients and program members who have gotten this diagnosis and it is such a mouthful of a term. It can feel so scary and overwhelming. And you of course think, oh my God, what have I done? Have I caused this? Um, and, and how is it going to potentially impact my baby? Would you say that I'm just like grilling you today. Would you say that the majority of, yeah, of babies of mothers who get gestational diabetes they're just fine. I mean, how does that, how can that potentially impact the baby? Yeah. If you fast forward to that point, you know, we do see in literature that children who are born to mothers with gestational diabetes, right. Not necessarily this whole pre-existing thing right. um, are at a slightly higher risk for potentially developing pre-diabetes or type two diabetes, sometimes as early as adolescence. I don't know that the literature shows it as much, but from my own experience or belief, maybe is a little bit more of a nurture versus nature argument sometimes when it comes to, right? Like if when your child is born and you're raising them and, you know, they're developing and everything, if we're fostering a healthy environment with food, positive relationships, food and movement, you know, I think that risk of them developing it as young as a teenager is probably far less than someone who that the genetic component of the gestational diabetes, maybe coupled with environmental factors is driving that to surface a little earlier for some kids. Got it. Okay. So that risk is there. Other immediate complications that can happen if this doesn't go well-managed when baby is born? Specifically to the baby, yes. If mom's blood sugars have been poorly managed in pregnancy, they're kind of getting those fluctuations in blood sugar, then essentially the baby in utero and then when they're born will have a tough time regulating their own glucose. So once the baby is delivered and we cut the cord, right, there's no more sugar coming in from mom, but the baby's pancreas all this time has maybe been overproducing insulin. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. help regulate their blood sugars. Okay. So what could unfortunately happen is baby's blood sugar might drop very low to become hypoglycemic. Mm. So there's maybe some extra monitoring and NICU stay, you know, either formula or glucose to kind of help stabilize the baby. But some of those are the immediate concerns for a baby. Okay. There's no way around it. PCOS is complex and multifaceted. What we know about it, including how best to treat it, is constantly changing. That's why I've dedicated my life's work to helping women put their PCOS into remission. Inside my signature program, the PCOS Boss Academy, women lose weight permanently without restriction and master their most stubborn PCOS symptoms. If you're looking to get pregnant or want to be a mom in the future, my ultra-successful Get Pregnant with PCOS program supports moms-to-be every step of the way in conquering PCOS symptoms and bringing home the baby of their dreams. Plus, there's an additional weight loss mode to check into. These are all of the science-backed nutrition and lifestyle tweaks you need to improve your PCOS and change your life from a qualified healthcare provider and leading PCOS expert in the field. Ultimately, we are in control of our PCOS, and I would love to work with you inside one of my upcoming programs so you can step into the best version of yourself and start feeling like you again. And what about, we hear some things about larger babies and body weight. Can that be impacted or is that not so common? As a child or a baby or... Um, Like the baby grows bigger and you have a larger baby if your blood sugar is kind of not being well managed. Exactly. Yeah. Because if we think about kind of the the nerdy like pathophysiology side... (laughs) I'm here for it. Yeah. I figured you would. Um, You know, when that extra sugar is crossing the placenta and going to baby, baby's pancreas is then making more insulin to regulate the blood sugar. Okay. And as you likely know, is also like a fat storage hormone. Mm-hmm. Baby will start to take that extra sugar from mom and turn it into cushy little body fat. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want the baby to grow, that's great. But sometimes the baby will grow too fast um, and too much causing sometimes we see, yeah, larger, larger babies, which could create all sorts of other complications at delivery. Um, you know, if a mom is hoping for a vaginal delivery, a really big baby. And sometimes they get really big shoulders, especially oh. um, the shoulders can kind of get stuck coming down the birth canal. So yeah. maybe more increased risk of tearing or bleeding or need to use forceps or vacuum, or baby just can't descend properly and they need to do, you know, a C-section or something okay. that's kind of all stemmed from that potentially larger size. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So definitely things to be aware of as far as potential complications, you know, if these, if this condition does not you know, go does not be, is not being well managed throughout the pregnancy. So tell us about risk. Who is at a higher risk for gestational diabetes, if anyone, and if so, if, if somebody gets gestational diabetes during a pregnancy, does, is that a, I mean, is it an automatic that they might get it again and have to deal with this again? Yeah. Great questions. Um, a lot of the risk factors are things that we can't really modify as mm. the pregnant person. Okay. So some of them, like a big one is age. The guidelines, oh. I think we say anyone over age of 25, which women are getting pregnant. Oh. <laughs> I thought like, you were going to say like 39 or something. Okay. Yeah. 25, I mean, yeah. That's what the you know guidelines say, but I think it is much more common in that 30 or 35 Got it. age 
category, especially more Um, family history. So if a parent or grandparent direct relative has type two diabetes um, or maybe even PCOS, Mm -hmm. that could be a risk factor as well. Um, PCOS, like you mentioned, if the pregnant had PCOS prior to pregnancy, we know certain race and ethnicity groups are at a higher risk. So African-American, Asians, Hispanics have slightly higher rates as well. Okay. There is also a little bit of talk of kind of body weight pre-pregnancy. So mm-hmm. not necessarily what's happening with your weight gain in the first, in the second trimester, because Got we it. know that it can be impacted by so many factors. Right. Um, kind of what was your pre-pregnancy weight status could potentially put you at higher risk for gestational diabetes as well. Okay. Got it. And and I think it's important to, you know, you mentioned family history for women who are pregnant now and listening to this or thinking about being in that phase of life, talk to, if you can talk to the women in your life who have had babies, because it's so important to understand and, and listen and learn, you know, about what their own experience was, because there, there is that genetic tie. A lot of times it's so good to be aware of, you know, what family members have gone through so that we can be better informed and kind of be on the lookout for certain things in our own pregnancies. I know I had pretty similar pregnancies that my, as that my mom had. So it was very interesting to see those similarities play out when I thought, oh, we're so different. That's not going to happen, but it really did play out that way. And you had your own experience um, with blood sugar stuff, I believe during your, was it your second pregnancy? Yeah. With my second, um, I took the one hour glucose test and I didn't pass it. You know, I hate using those terms pass fail. I had an elevated reading. Um, and I was like literally leaving on vacation the next day. (laughs) And I'm like, I just want to know what's going on Mm -hmm. and like, you know, cross this off my to-do list. So I reached out to my OB and Mm -hmm. she knows what I do. She's (laughs) friendly with the doctors I work with and everything. So respects kind of whatever decision I wanted to make. And I said, I'm going to rather than me doing the three hour glucose test. And to be honest, I didn't really want to go through that either. Um, You know, can I do some home glucose monitoring, not changing anything? I'll take it on vacation. I'll do it there. I'll have my ice cream. Like I want to see what's what my blood sugar is. I was going to say that's bold to take it on vacation. I mean, I wouldn't even know what mine would do. (laughs) Especially yeah. my note on vacation is yeah. I got COVID. So oh. it could have like made it potentially higher, mm. you know, than what it truly would have been. But anyway, she let me self-monitor for two weeks and I sent her all my data. And, you know, based on that, she said, no, you don't have gestational diabetes. You can stop. Um, oh. and this is something that I you know, use with my own clients at our practice as well as we offer this for certain people in certain circumstances to do the home monitoring versus doing the second step of that glucose test. Um, cool. Yeah, put me in my patient's shoes a little bit more than yes. I thought. Right. And I think we talked about this before, but I mean, it obviously that's an, that's a really scary thing to go through, but in hindsight, it can be like a learning opportunity for us to be like, okay, no, this is actually what it feels like to sit with that diagnosis potentially. And it, you know, it never obviously, and, and a good thing never really came into fruition for you, but it's just a, it's, it's so important to understand what clients and what women in that space are feeling. So I think it's, you know, 
however scary and and complex and frustrating, you know, it 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 did probably allow you to grow as a practitioner. I'm assuming. How did you get that um, that monitor? And and how if women want to monitor their blood sugar at home, is there any other way to do it except from aside from getting a prescription from your doctor? Because I know most of them, if not all of them, right? You have to go through insurance, or I don't know. So you actually don't, just like a traditional finger stick glucometer oh. with the meter, the strips, and the lancets. Uh-huh. Um, you can purchase that all yourself over the counter at a drugstore. So wow. my office, I'd always gotten samples to give yeah. to people, you know, for free from the companies, and then they would have to get their own buy more strips and things. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I had my own meter. So I just went to the drugstore the night before we left on vacation, picked up some strips and needles and took that with me. Um, it, most insurances, yes, will cover. So if you have this diagnosis, please, before you go to the pharmacy and buy it yourself out of pocket, check with your insurance to see what brand they'll cover. The thing now that a lot of people will ask me about is, can they use a continuous glucose monitor? Yes. Which are the, you know, kind of patch-like devices that sit on your skin, a tiny little catheter um, that's reading your glucose levels. And those are, there's one that has recently been approved for use in pregnancy, Mm. the Dexcom, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And the reason that others maybe aren't is because we don't really find the results using a CGM in pregnancy Mm. to be as accurate um, and correlate super well with the finger sticks because we have all this expanded fluid and blood volume in pregnancy, uh, the CGMs may not give us the best results. Um, but they are a fantastic option and give you so many cool insights. Hmm, that's really cool. Good to know. I want to back up a little bit because we're talking about, you know, glucose monitoring and the, the, you know, glucose tolerance test. We should have covered this first, but how does somebody get a gestational diabetes diagnosis and how, you know, is there any way, is there any way that we could do to prevent Yeah. Yeah, Good question. You know, I think so traditionally, if you have no risk factors, which as we mentioned is probably not many of us, we at least have maybe one risk factor. If you're pretty low profile, the traditional testing will happen around 24 to 26 weeks of pregnancy for all regardless. So you will get Um, that test. Everyone should get that test. Exactly. Okay. Um, Because anyone can have it. Doesn't have a low. So the first in the United States, uh, we mostly use what's called a two-step process. So so step number one would be to do a 50 gram glucose drink, that lovely glucola beverage. I didn't Um, hate it. I'm not going to lie, Casey. I was like, I'll sip on this. Like I'll, you know, whatever. I'll just pretend it's a cocktail. I, I, I didn't think it was that bad. Yeah, I say <laughs> put it cold, you know, just make sure you're drinking yeah. it cold over some ice or something. It's uh-huh. um, so you drink that, they'll check your blood sugar. There's different cutoffs depending on the lab or the practice sometimes, but if your value is above the cutoff, then you would go for step two, which is a 100 gram glucose drink. So double the amount and it's a three hour test. You'll go in fasting. They'll check your blood fasting and then every hour for three hours. So one, two, and three hours. Then they'll want to see if two of those values are above the established goals. You then have a positive diagnosis. Okay. Got it. That's that, you know, again, for some people who maybe have higher risk factors, at my practice, at least, we might do like an earlier assessment. We might check like 14 or 16 weeks. And that's where some of that undiagnosed prediabetes, you know, could start to surface and manifest, which 
we've been doing a lot more of in my practice lately. And it's been really helpful because we've been able to intervene and talk about diet and help people change their habits um, earlier. Yeah. Love it. And what better motivation than, you know, while you're pregnant, talk to us. Can you tell us what those risk factors might be? I'm really curious how, you know, if, if somebody potentially has one or, or more, how they might even be able to advocate for themselves to get that level check sooner. I think that would be helpful. Yeah. I just had this conversation with a patient yesterday. You know, I think knowing either through your primary care doctor or through your OB, knowing what your A1C status is at the the early stages of pregnancy, or if not in those, you know, months leading up to conception or whether you're doing IVF or something like know what that value is. Cause sometimes I'll tell people like, Let's say you're 43 years old, your A1C is 5.5 or 5.6, which is really close to that mm-hmm. pre-diabetes cutoff, mm-hmm. um, good IVF, you have a family history. If all those things are surfacing, I told this person yesterday, I said, would you be open to just starting to check your blood sugar now? I know you're only 14 weeks. It's a lot sooner than the traditional evaluation. But if we could get some early insights, we might be able to really lay a better, stronger foundation, manage your blood sugar naturally for much longer, rather than like trying to play catch up later in the pregnancy, have you go on medication like right off the bat. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. All for that. Obviously that's great. I hope that we can do that more. (laughs) Yeah. I would say that's my best advice for kind of prevention. There is unfortunately no way to prevent gestational diabetes, Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I think it's worth every pregnant woman to Mm -hmm. in those first and second trimesters or leading up to conception as much as they can focus on those kind of blood sugar balancing diet principles in your body when you can, um, which we might talk. Yes, totally. Yeah. I know. I, I remember with my first pregnancy, just being so scared that I would, I would get gestational diabetes because I had such a history of blood sugar lows. I mean, my blood sugar just drops like a rock when it feels like it, unless I'm being really, really careful about my diet and having this PCOS diagnosis, I was sure that I would have it and I didn't. And then a colleague of mine who does not have PCOS and, you know, no prior blood sugar issues, uh, very health, you know, air quotes, healthy, normal weight, everything was diagnosed with it. And she's a dietitian and it was just like, wow. Okay. So it really doesn't discriminate and anybody could potentially get this diagnosis. Yeah. That's impressive that you did for both of your pregnancies, both. right? You yeah. So fantastic. I know. Yeah. Thankfully, thankfully. Yeah. But I also, I'm really, really obviously like <laughs> very careful about blood sugar balance just in my day to day. Um, and I, you know, I think that that did serve me well in carrying that through to my pregnancy because I knew, you know, even though, all I wanted to eat during my pregnancy with olive was fruit. Like I could have eaten, like I could have eaten an entire watermelon every day. I was like, nope, gotta add protein to that. So that foundation, you know, of knowledge, I think really helped me. And then that's really where your work shines because you're able to educate women um, who have never really thought about it in that way, you know, how to do that. And they, and they can carry that with them way beyond the point of pregnancy, Right. So, so cool. What are some common myths that just give us like two or three and, and please bust them for us, because I know they're out there when it comes to gestational diabetes and, you know, pre-diabetes and pregnancy and prenatal nutrition. What are some myths that you commonly hear? For gestational diabetes? I think the biggest one arguably is that people need to fully eliminate carbs. Mm, Yeah. 
I'm sure doctors, doctors. that's what doctors say. Yeah. They say (laughs) eliminating like very specific ones, like don't have any white rice, don't have any potatoes, like all the white things, um, which is completely false. You and your baby (laughs) will need carbs. Um, Even the white ones we can have, it has a lot more to do with how are we balancing out those carbs with other foods at your meals and snacks? Um, What portion sizes are we having them in? So that is a major one that I love to ease people's minds about. Yeah. Gosh, not only are you told you have gestational diabetes, you're told to cut all carbs. I mean, that's like crazy. I, that's, I cannot even imagine that, especially while pregnant, like you take away my, my oysters, you take away my, my, my wine. Mm-hmm. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I, oh no, I can't have carbs either. Like what? <laughs> you mentioned some people are like still struggling with like nausea and food aversions and stuff. Yes. Second, third trimester. It's like, yeah. I'm not going to take away your bread. Like that's right? your base of so many things. So true. Okay. That's a good one. Definitely uh, a common one that even I have heard. What's another one that you have heard often? I think sometimes there's also like a misconception about weight change in pregnancy and how that maybe interplays with a gestational diabetes diagnosis or Mm. other complications in pregnancy. You know, we do have some data definitely that links excessive weight gain or the rate of weight gain in pregnancy to certain complications, things like that. Okay. From my perspective as a dietitian, and I, you know, I could get flack for saying this. I could care less about what the number on the scale says about mm-hmm. how your weight is changing in pregnancy. I'm so much more concerned with what does your diet quality look like? What about mm-hmm. the nutrients that you're taking in? Right. You know, you could not gain a pound, but if you're not eating like any eggs or seafood in your pregnancy, you're not supplementing with those things. I'm not happy about that. I'd rather right. on that aspect. Got it. Got it. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a big one is, you know, gaining weight faster than what is recommended. I always tell clients like there have been many healthy babies and many healthy pregnancies where women have not gained enough weight. And there have been many healthy pregnancies and many healthy babies where mothers have gained over the recommended amount to gain. So that's not the end all be all when we're talking about in pregnancy. And it sounds like it's the same thing for, for this diagnosis. Yeah. I have a lot of people be like, so I should be counting my calories. Right. And I'm like, I don't uh, need your calories. Like yeah. if you want to pay attention to anything, maybe yeah. we're going to read some labels and look at carbs, but I'm not counting calories for you right now. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot on top of everything. Oh my gosh. What is there? Is there any others that you hear commonly? I feel like there's probably so many. Um, <laughs> yeah, those are the, like the big ones that jump out at me. Yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. Well, good to know. What about exercise? If somebody has this diagnosis, how do you recommend a specific type of exercise? Is there one exercise that's best? Um, what kind of routine can be helpful? Can exercise be helpful? You know, uh, there's a lot of, we talk about that in terms of blood sugar, but is there a special connection to gestational diabetes or is that the connection? Yeah. I think it's more through that like overall lens of blood sugar management, whether we're pregnant or not, you know, with pregnancy, there's that added layer of just safety and being aware mm-hmm. of in your body when you're moving. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'll always tell people kind of, if you were active pre-pregnancy doing certain things, whether that was strength or weight training or 
running or cycling or swimming. Mm-hmm. If you feel confident doing that pre-pregnancy, you should feel confident to do that during your pregnancy as much as your body allows. Pay attention to how your weight's shifting and your, you know, your balance and everything, just wanting to do those exercises safely. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to blood sugar, yeah, let's let's keep moving. Um, you know, anything from walking to spinning to prenatal yoga or prenatal Pilates, things like that are great. What I'll tell people for kind of to target specific, specifically blood sugars is it can be helpful to get moving like after a meal, especially if it is one, maybe mm-hmm. higher carbs or simple sugars. Okay. Even just going for a 10 to 20 minute walk could lower your blood sugar by 10 to 15 points. That's awesome. That's yeah, really awesome. Very effective tool in the toolbox. Um, so yeah. that could be like movement in the moment. Okay. You could do. Um, but I'm also a big proponent of doing, if you can, more like strength training, resistance, body mm. weight types of exercises. So I remember always doing like little prenatal circuit workouts, just mm-hmm. squats, like really gentle, low impact, light weights types of things, because yeah. that's helping to increase your muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And then the more muscle mass that you have, your muscles basically just become kind of giant sugar sponges. They're able to just passively absorb that glucose um, a little better. Mm-hmm. So I like that on the whole to help with glucose management. Yeah. Sugar sponge. I like the name of that. <laughs> I feel like so many of us shy away from strength training during pregnancy. I and mean, I remember thinking like, well, if I do a squat, what, am I going to squat my baby out? Like I'm scared. Like, like <laughs> you like, there's so much fear built around, you know, more intense or kind of weight, weight bearing exercises, but that's really good to know. And I love that. Um, you yeah. called that the muscles that that's so cool. Awesome. And it's, you know, the walks so easy to implement, you know, if we're just conscious about it, even if we're working after lunch, you know, take a little 10, even like five minute walk, or if you're working from home, take your dog for a walk. So powerful and such a small thing we can do. Exactly. Let's talk about when, after somebody gets a diagnosis, potentially, what are some tips that you often give clients who are struggling to understand, cope with a diagnosis, first of all, and implement some of the things that can be helpful for, for managing this? Yeah. My first question when I meet with someone is always like, how are you doing? Tell me what kind of headspace you're in. Mm, right. I love that. Because I'm not just going to launch into what they think I'm going to launch into, which is telling them like what not to eat and what to eat. I want to know like, how are they processing this? Um, And that's when a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of self-blame comes up. I hate that. It's the worst. So we're squashing. You're letting them know that this is not their problem. It's not something they caused. And like, here's the path. Like, this is the support that you're going to get. We're going to work together manage this. Um, let's be real about the risks, but we're going to try to minimize all of those as much as we possibly can. Right. So that's what I do first and foremost. And then we talk about food. And again, rather than me just putting my educator hat on and talking about the diet, I'll assess what they're currently eating. Mm. Um, there's usually a middle ground. People will think, or they, maybe they've already done it. They got the diagnosis and they just took out of their diet all the quote bad things that they thought they were eating. The breads went away. The pasta went away. No more potatoes, even fruit. They're like terrified to eat fruit. I know. Tell me what you were eating Mm -hmm. and go back through your day together and talk about how can we make this more blood sugar friendly, really hitting what we can add like proteins, fats, Mm -hmm. fiber, snacks like that. Yes. 
Totally. Oh, I love that. And I, I get so many clients who are like that guilt and shame cycle where they just cannot stomach anything else in the first trimester except crackers or, you know, whatever toast. And then they're like, am I, am I setting myself up for, you know, gestational diabetes, diabetes, or even miscarriage? And it's like, no, no, like focus on, do the best you can and add, add instead of takeaway. Cause if all you can stomach is some crackers, try and add something to that. Like sliced cheese. I don't know. Something simple. Yeah. I always tell people too, I think, what is it? Like more than a third of women experience nausea or vomiting in pregnancy. So like that's 30% plus, but we know only like maybe 10 to 15% of women have gestational diabetes. Mm. So if it was really the nausea that was causing it, we would see much higher rates of gestational diabetes, but we don't. That's so true. That's so true. Did you struggle with nausea and morning sickness stuff? I did not. I was <gasps> me neither. Oh my god! I thought I was, I'm always full of ice. I know. I don't like that. like. I know. I like. I can't relate to you on that. I don't have I any tips because it did not happen to me at all. So yeah. I know. Okay. Listeners don't hate us, please. Don't turn us <laughs> off. <laughs> my mom probably didn't. My mom didn't. So my mom, you're right. My mom did not. See, another reason why you check in and ask if you can ask what your mom's pregnancy was like. It's so true. Although my mom did not experience any postpartum hair loss and I had it so bad with both. Um, so I'm like, okay, screw you. And I'm just kidding. Let's talk about sleep because obviously a struggle during pregnancy. And I will say it continues to be a struggle after a baby comes into the world. So any, are, is there any connection between sleep and blood sugar and how can that be, how can women, you know, think about it in those terms? Because I feel like every time I talk about sleep on social media, it's like literally like the least sexy topic. Um, but it's so important. What, what is that connection? It's, I think, a very multifaceted connection. You know, sleep is that time that our body is, yes, restoring, resetting our hormones that regulate appetite and blood sugars and stress are all taking that time to regulate, get down to a good baseline. So Mm -hmm. sleep is very important. But, you know, during pregnancy, there's restless legs, there's leg cramps, there's getting up to go to the bathroom or you have a toddler at home that's waking up in the middle of the night. Um, You wake up hungry. There's so many things. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That can interrupt sleep. And when sleep is interrupted, whether you feel like it's stressful to get up and go to the bathroom two times a night, your body perceives that it's a little stressful. And so your stress hormones rise. And at the same time, your blood sugar will rise slightly. So, you know, that's something I'm always putting on people's radar. And then, you know, there's also a little bit of a balancing act of like sleeping enough and getting that restorative sleep and sleeping too much and what your blood sugars can look like if you happen to sleep in. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. There's, you know, a lot of talk about the fasting blood sugar and how that one is really tough to control. People will wake up in the morning and see their. And again, that could be related to some of those nighttime disturbances. Um, It could be related to how long you're fasting also. So I'll have people manage on the weekends and they'll be sleeping 10, 11, 12 hours or not waking up till 10 AM. What's that like? Well, for all of us, I know. I don't even know. I'm going to be that person and tell you, just wait, like, just yeah. wait. That's going to stop. But just wow. like the fact that they're sleeping longer and later, again, everyone's blood sugar goes up naturally in the morning. So they might notice that their fasting blood sugar is higher when they wake up because they kind of slept, quote, 
too much. It's weird. It's, you know, I love good sleep hygiene practices. It's so yes. important. Some of those nuisances during pregnancy that may impact your blood sugar. Sometimes there's nothing we can do about it. It's hard right. to stop peeing. You know, we just yes. can't. Oh, that. no, totally. And that, so that speaks to that. My next question was about the stress and, you know, the stress connection to everything. And obviously, you know, we can talk about stress all day long and it impacts absolutely everything on, you know, on the basically everything in our bodies. But is there any special connection between stress and, and gestational diabetes that we know of? Is there any research on that? When we talk, I mean, I think it goes for all types of diabetes, right? When we're under, you know, either acute or chronic stress, uh-huh. our body goes back into that like primitive fight or flight mode, right? We think mm-hmm. we're being chased by a tiger, our, mm-hmm. like our ancestors. And so your body sends out stress hormones, which will send glucose out to your brain, to your muscles to jump into action. So even if you had like a stressful work call or something, and then you went to go eat your lunch and you thought you were making this like low carb, super balanced chicken and salad lunch, but then you get a high blood sugar reading and you're all confused. Like why the heck is it so high? Well, it probably wasn't the food. It was maybe the stressful work conversation that you just had that got you kind of worked up. That's crazy. That connection is wild to me. Oh my gosh. Another reminder to focus on that and prioritize that when, you know, when you can, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. Wow. So that, I mean, it feels like there's so much information about blood sugar and how much, how connected it is to pregnancy and to our, our health. I don't understand why we don't learn more about this in school. It absolutely boggles my brain. Like why (laughs) it's so important. Oh man. Learn about it in isolation. Like there's type one and there's type two and maybe you hear about gestational diabetes, but you don't hear about what I know you talk about so much too, is like the root causes of all these things, like understanding like how blood sugar regulation impacts, you know, your ovulation, your fertility, which then influences things in pregnancy and postpartum. Like Mm -hmm. it's really complicated and it's affecting more and more women. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. Yes. All all, it really is. It's, it's so common and it flies so under the radar. So kind of in closing, I want to ask you, you know, we talked a little bit about what we can add to our plate, you know, if we get a diagnosis, how we can kind of structure eating and in our mindset, how about, is there something that you can speak on when it comes to monitoring blood sugar after a diagnosis? Because I think a lot of us get this fear that we'll have to, you know, start using insulin. How does somebody potentially avoid doing that? Like, how are they monitoring? Um, Are they getting that? Is it de- called Dexacom? So the Dexcom would be like Dexcom. one of the okay. that makes the continuous glucose monitors. Okay. Um, there's it. so many other of just the regular finger okay. stick monitors, which is what your OBGYN or midwife, whoever should be setting you up with. Got it. Um, the typical pattern is to check your blood sugar four times a day. Okay. So that's getting usually a fasting glucose in the morning and then doing after your breakfast, lunch, lunch and dinner. Okay. Give us four data points, right? I typically find like your meals, you know, if we make some diet changes, if you need to, a lot of those can be kept at goal. They can be okay. very well managed. Um, and sure, you're going to have a few random spikes here and there, whether that was like intentional, you went out to a special 
anniversary dinner or you had a wedding to attend or your baby shower. Mm-hmm. I'm generally speaking, I tell people like, don't worry about that. Like go enjoy yeah. your baby shower. It's one day. Yes. The rest of your numbers during the week are well-controlled. I'm super happy. Right. You know, but some people can become really carb intolerant and even the smallest amount of carbs sends their blood sugar over goals. So if we start to see that, then that's a sign that you might need um, some medication or some insulin. Um, And the same would be true for that fasting glucose as well. That's arguably the toughest one for women to control because there are certain diet and lifestyle changes that you can make, but it's very influenced by your hormones. So Mm -hmm. if after a period of time, you know, I see people's fasting glucose still above the goal that it needs to be at, we'll have that conversation again about some bedtime insulin or some medication. Um, and again, not your fault for, for right. needing to go that way. And I think I've had more people tell me after starting insulin, how relieved they feel mm. that they now don't have to wake up every morning stressing about what their fasting blood sugar is. That's um, stressful. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. They can really yeah. eat and like feel satisfied. Like, okay, yeah. I will use a little bit of insulin or medication before I eat so that I can have more than a tablespoon of brown rice at my meal. I'm like, yeah, let's get you some more energy, yeah. carbs, good carbs, and just benefit mm-hmm. from this really safe medication. Yes. No shame in, in that game for sure. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Casey. You are such a wealth of knowledge. And anyone who's under ever struggling with this, I always point them to you. How do you work with women? How can women find you? Um, do you work with men too, or just women and kind of the prenatal pregnancy side? Yeah, mostly just women as my oh, one clients. I have plenty yeah. of husbands join in consultations. I um, love that. I really love yeah. that. Sometimes they're the chef and they want to really understand and support their partner. So men are welcome to join the session. But nice. right now, so I work at the clinic in New York City, um, okay. virtually seeing clients from that practice. But Got my it. own private practice, I do virtual. I mostly do one-on-one consults with people right now. Um, we kind of customize and talk about a package or what sessions look like for their specific needs. Um, that's what I do right now. I have on my website, like a downloadable resource guide for gestational diabetes. So people can check that out too and kind of start there. But then if they want that personalized support, I'm here for the one-on-ones. So cool. Well, thank you so much. And where can listeners find you? I'm mostly, although sporadically these days, because <laughs> mom life, um, mom life yeah. <laughs> social media on Instagram, my handle is eat.well.together. Awesome. Thank you so much, Casey. Thank you. This was so much fun, Corey.